Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, have you heard any of these claims either in your church or by Christians? Sin is oppression. Straight white males need to listen. The Bible was written from the perspective of the oppressed. Whiteness is wickedness. Justice is part of the gospel. Christianity is about liberation from oppression. And there can be no reconciliation without justice. Have you heard any of these claims? If you have, critical theory may have crept into your church or at least into the people that have said these things. And there is a brand new fantastic research, uh, a resource, I should say, that will help you understand what critical theory is. Uh, it'll help you understand what the good things are about it, what the bad things are about it, and how you can converse in a very professional and true way with unbelievers and with believers. The new book by Dr. Neil Shenry and Dr. Pat Sawyer, which came out just this week, October 3rd, is called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Now, despite the fact that both of these gentlemen went to two of the most liberal schools in the country, Neil went to UCAL Berkeley. We say UCAL Berserkly here. And uh, and uh, Pat went to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Both of these gentlemen are Christians. They're Christian scholars. We've had Neil on the show before, but not Pat. So, Pat, let me start with you. Uh, give us a little bit about how you got interested in critical theory. You're now a professor at UNC Greensboro. How did you get interested in this topic? Well, I was a banker for about 20 years, and I felt God was pressing me to retire from banking and get more directly involved in the arena of ideas. I've been doing lay apologetics since I became a believer at age 19, and I started doing apologetics at about age 22, 23. And so when I was retiring from my bank life and I was considering what I should do relative to upping my involvement with ideas, I considered being a pastor and then also considered... I don't think that God is leading me to be a pastor after prayer. And I started to consider graduate school and getting into teaching at a university and college level. And, and so partly what I wanted to do, Frank, was pick an area that had some challenge to Christian epistemology, to the mm -hmm. Christian faith, and by God's grace, get involved in that discipline and that knowledge area and learn it to be able to be salt and light in that context. And I also wanted to pick something that had common grace associated with it, some ideas that are permeating it that had some dovetail with biblical truth. And so such social justice oriented uh, ideas fit that bill. You know, obviously Christians are concerned about biblical justice and understanding justice in a right way, concerned about pushing back against racism and sexism, where it is truly operative. And at the same time, 
the ideas that are rooted in critical social theory, critical theory, historic critical theory, and then critical social theory, and downstream from that, critical social justice and anti-racism are diametrically opposed, a lot of those ideas, to the Christian faith. So that really seemed to be a good launch point for me. I also wanted to teach and having my PhD is in educational studies and cultural studies. And so that would allow me to do that. And then that cultural studies aspect of it looks at media studies in terms of uh, movies and, and music as cultural artifacts. So that dovetails with some of my interests. Mm -hmm. It turns out my dissertation is about social justice in the context of higher education against the backdrop of neoliberalism. And my conceptual framework builds from historic critical theory to critical pedagogy to cultural foundations. And so this puts me in this knowledge area. And so that's how I've kind of landed where I've landed. Now, Neil, you've been on the program several times. We've talked critical theory before. You've got a great website, shenviapologetics.com, or is it dot .org? Dot .com. Is it dot .com, yeah. right? Yeah, it's dot .com. And you uh, recently wrote a great apologetics book called Why Believe? And you got involved in uh, the critical theory uh, area. You've got some great articles. I normally refer, when people ask me questions about it, I always refer to your website. Can you kind of give us a, 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 a clear, short uh, definition or distinction between what people consider social justice versus what true biblical justice is? Right. So when people use the term social justice in our culture today, they tend to use a definition that's informed by critical theory or critical social theory. It's an umbrella category that goes back to the ideas of Karl Marx and has evolved over the last, say, 100, 150 years to encompass whole areas of knowledge like critical race theory, queer theory, post-colonial theory, critical pedagogy. So all of these areas are concerned about social justice. Now, what does that mean to them? What does that phrase mean to them? And the phrase it refers to the elimination of the social binary so that they, they conceptualize society as divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, religion, and a host of other factors. And to them, social justice means tearing down the norms and values and systems and structures that create and perpetuate that social binary, that create oppressors and create the oppressed and marginalize the oppressed and give power to the oppressors. That's what they mean by social justice. Now, as Christians, we'd say we care about justice, biblical justice defined by the Bible. And that would not, in some ways, we'd agree that there, there can be unjust systems, for example, slavery, abortion, mm -hmm. unjust system of laws. Mm -hmm. But simply the fact that you know, there are certain norms and values in society is not by itself a form of oppression. So, for example, critical theory today, as expressed in queer theory, would say the gender binary itself is oppressive. It was created for heterosexual white males to, to marginalize women, LGBTQ people. And they would say social justice demands that we tear down the gender binary. As Christians, of course, we would say, no, the gender binary is indeed a norm and a value, but it's not ours. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's God's value. And it's part of his good creation. Pat, you've done so much research in this area as well as Neil. When uh, critical theorists uh, bring forth what they perceive to be injustices, by what moral standard are they making these claims? Yeah, that's a great question because that really gets to the heart of where there can be some incompatibility around these issues. So when 
a critical theorist is making a claim about who is an oppressor and who is the oppressed and what constituencies are outside of power and therefore should be empowered, therefore should be given agency, should be emancipated from their disenfranchisement, from their marginalization. They are making those decisions based upon the pre-commitments and the core values and the ideological standpoints of the knowledge area. And, and so for a critical theorist that is thinking about issues around uh, women and reproductive health, then abortion becomes something that is part and parcel to something that is good based upon a help towards women relative to them having agency over their reproductive health. But critical theory and critical social theory and critical theories make this claim because they hold to a view of morality that would be radically different than how Christians would view that very topic that would now bring in to issues around the Imago Day, would bring in issues around what murder actually is and what it entails and the broad jurisdiction of what murder encompasses. All that would be thought about differently in a Christian paradigm than it would be from a critical social theory paradigm. And so, so they're operating they're operating from a completely different moral standard. That's right. A different regime of okay. truth, a different All set right. of of moral values. And it's not that critical social theory is without moral values. It certainly has an ethic, but it's sure. that ethic runs counter to biblical Christian ethics from a number of standpoints, not entirely, but from a number of standpoints. When we come back from the break, we're going to unpack uh, critical theory so you'll understand it better. You have to understand it before you can evaluate it. And that's what we'll do right after the break. The brand new book, Critical Dilemma by Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer. Highly recommended. Back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You will never hear this on NPR. We're talking about critical theory based on the new book by Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer called Critical Dilemma. The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Extremely well-researched, but written at a lay level, anyone could understand this book, but there's over 700 footnotes in it that will help you see that these men aren't just shooting from the hip. They have gone to the uh, to the sources of critical theory and have unpacked what they've said. They've quoted what they've said. And then Pat and Neil have evaluated what they've said. And they've also done so in the context of scripture. So. How are we supposed to think about critical theory? What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And how are we supposed to interact with people who may be in the church that actually believe this? Neil, let me go back to you. If we were kind of going to give a, a definition of critical theory, and there's it, it spans many different disciplines, but what would that definition be? So we like to talk about four big ideas at the heart of the critical tradition. So the ideas are the social binary, uh, hegemonic power, lived experience and social justice, which I touched on earlier. So the first social binary says that society is divided into oppressors and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, and so forth. But then people often hear that and they say, wait a minute, I, I don't think people in our society today as a group are oppressed. I mean, are, are, are people of color just tyrannically treated cruelly all the time they walk around in chains? Well, no. 
Well, that's that's because critical theory has redefined the word oppression. When they say that people of color and women and LGBTQ people are oppressed, what they mean is they're oppressed by hegemonic power. What does that mean? Hegemonic power means the ability of oppressor groups, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or Christians, to impose their values on society so that those values and norms and expectations are taken as natural, objective, even God-ordained. So when those values suffuse society in the white supremacist culture, in, in a patriarchal culture, in a heterosexist culture, that is oppression. That's the second idea. The third idea is lived experience. How do we escape from these powerful, oppressive norms and values imposed on us by white, straight men? The answer is my lived experience as an oppressed person can help me see through these values and understand them as merely arbitrary exercises of power and privilege. Then the goal, and I can liberate myself and others from these oppressive ways of thinking. And the goal of this whole project is social justice, which is defined as eliminating the social binary so that groups can share power. There are no more oppressive narratives. So those four ideas are at the heart of the critical tradition today and throughout, throughout history, really. And you see them expressed in various fields like critical race theory, queer theory, postcolonialism, and so forth. So, Pat, let's take the uh, definition of oppression that Neil just mentioned there a minute ago. How are these groups oppressed according to them, according to critical theorists? Well, oppression for critical theorists has kind of two pathways. One, a critical theorist, critical theory would say that, you know, overt tyranny, violence, those kinds of things certainly are oppression. We agree with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously, uh, Christians agree with yeah. that. Uh, critical social theory and critical theory also ties oppression to hegemonic power. The notion that dominant stakeholders in society, the elite, the status quo, are controlling norms, traditions, and customs, and laws, and policies, and those norms, traditions, and customs that are reified and put in place in society by those who have power are, in effect, marginalizing those who don't agree with those customs, with those norms, with those traditions, or with those laws or policies. But wouldn't that be true of anybody who doesn't get their way politically? Sure. I mean, wouldn't that? Yes, that's. If, I mean, if 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 your law doesn't get passed and the opposite law gets passed, or your guy or gal doesn't get in, okay, you're the political loser. Would they consider the person that lost oppressed? Yeah, so that that's a good point, and you're right. There's a sense in which that what you just said makes sense, and that's that's why often evangelical Christians feel like, hey, we're marginalized, we're oppressed, right. we're because we're outside <laughs> of the hegemonic norms that are, for instance, driving mm-hmm. the entertainment industry in terms of what's being offered and provided. We are pro-life, and yet we've got laws that say abortion is okay. And, and But the reality is, is that critical social theorists, like we've already talked about, have an undergirding philosophical and epistemological and moral perspective that is driving their claims, that is driving what they view to be oppressive or not mm. oppressive. And they are working from the paradigm or and staying consistent with that moral and epistemological foundation. And so therefore, what some people might would consider is just uh, a hegemonic norm that is not embedded with anything immoral at all, if that is leaving those outside of power that critical social theory cares about, well, now it will be seen 
as something that is oppressive. So would would they consider Christians in, say, North Korea oppressed by their own definition? Because if they if they go to the intersectionality route, let me ask you this, Neil. Um, in America, uh, a black lesbian Ivy League professor is considered mm-hmm. oppressed, while a poor white Christian heterosexual male living on welfare is an oppressor, yeah. according to the critical theory. Correct? Yeah. And and so. Would they ever acknowledge when Christians are oppressed, or does it does that not fit their worldview? So one of the problems that critical social theorists tend to have is they think of everything very uh, in terms of the entire culture-wide structures and systems. So what they would say uh-huh. is that they might even concede that sure, uh, it's possible for a Christian to walk into some business and be told that we don't serve Christians here, and that would be maybe even unjust. They would say. But they would argue mm-hmm. that the structured society is so deeply embedded with Christian values that on the whole, the, the, the poor, disabled Christian male is an oppressor because he benefits. He has this white privilege, the Christian privilege that he benefits from passively simply by existing in a heteronormative white supremacist patriarchy. He just has that privilege no matter where he goes. Whereas I think in the book we point out and i think you're rightly discerning that in reality his actual day-to-day experience is not one of 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 being an oppressor the example we give Mm -hmm. is you know oprah is a black woman and so critical theorists would say as a black woman she is being marginalized and even oppressed and we point out in the book in no sense is Oprah as an individual remotely approaching actual oppression. She she has. I would love to be oppressed like Oprah. Wouldn't you see, love to be oppressed like? Right. Oprah? They don't think in terms of. Indiv- <laughs> they will say outright uh-huh. that we don't think in terms of individuals. That will blind you to the reality of the society's structure, which does marginalize Black women. So if you twist their arm, they'd say, to them, "Well, maybe Oprah has class privilege." But she's still truly oppressed as a black woman. And that does not just go away by the fact that she's a multi-billionaire with seven houses and a jet. <laughs> well, how does this jibe then? Because you also mentioned one of those four critical components of critical theory uh, was lived experience. Uh, so if lived experience is critical, no pun intended, to their theory, um, that is an individual experience, and yet they're saying they don't take into account individual experience. So it seems to be a contradiction here. Am I missing something? So well, lived experience is an interesting, it's a technical term. It refers to your experience okay. uh, at a social, certain social location. So they're not saying, for example, when they talk about lived experience, they will not talk about where you grew up where you went to school, uh, your favorite ice cream mm-hmm. shop, you know, the, the, the names, your parents, that that's not about lived experience. What they will talk about is what kind of intersection of marginalized groups you lived in. So that for them is a form of lived experience. And they just don't really think about actual day to day realities. Like, you know, I growing up, I played soccer and my parents drove me to the game. Those are experiences, but when they refer to lived experience, it's a, it's a technical term that refers to uh, where you fall in the social binary. A good example of this would be, and, and, and here's a, there's more to it than that. According mm-hmm. to them, certain groups, by virtue of being oppressed, have greater access to truth. So not all mm-hmm. people's experiences are created equal. 
if you're part of a privileged group, whether you're white or male or heterosexual, you are blinded by your social location because you have both conscious and subconscious reasons to ignore the reality of social injustice. In contrast, if you're part of multiple oppressed groups, whether you're black or Hispanic or you're a woman or you're LGBTQ or disabled, then you have increased awareness in, 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 uh, of reality. You are better access to truths about your oppression, and therefore you have the unique authority to speak to your truth. So this is why they can mm. tell a white, straight white male, oh, don't, you, know, you need to be quiet, sit down and shut up because you are blinded to the reality, whereas uh, a black lesbian has unique of experience that gives her insight into reality so yeah there is a asymmetry there that's often missed pat have you had christians evangelical christians claiming that this is the right way to treat people to say that if you're white you ought not be heard but if you're black you ought to be heard well that certainly is a, a possible thing that takes place in evangelical circles as critical social theories made inroads into the evangelical church then we do find at times where that very thing is taking place, that certain evangelicals will say that, okay, if you're a white male, you've had your time to speak, your time is over now, it's time for someone that has a different social location, different ethnic background to speak. But I would say that that is obviously more prevalent, that kind of mentality is more prevalent in the context of, of broader society. And then we would also recognize that is relative to some of the positives relative to critical social theory that at times certain groups have been marginalized and their voice has been suppressed. And, and that, you know, when we think of slavery and Jim Crow, that's a reality and a dynamic for the black community without question. And so there, there is a place at times that when we recognize that if a black person has a specific lived experience of actual racism that is more pronounced than mm -hmm. the typical white person, and that given the fact that those voices by the black community have been historically marginalized, then it might make actual biblical sense to prioritize that person, that black female in the context of your social group at the moment, to prioritize their voice in terms of talking about the racist situation that took place in their life and how we ought to think about it. And I, I would also mention that too, that Critical social theory, as Neil said, would absolutely say that Oprah is, in fact, oppressed relative to her gender and is, in fact, oppressed relative to her race. But they would also indicate that her class power makes her less overall oppressed than, say, a poor white person living in Appalachia. They certainly would be reasonable. The next question we're going to ask right after the break is... We have made progress over the past 50 or 60 years. How do critical race theorists deal with the progress? Do they admit it? Do they not? Right after the break, get the new book, Critical Dilemma, by my guests Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer, back in two minutes. How do critical race theorists respond when you point out that we've made great progress, thankfully, on the racial front in America? We'll learn from our two guests, Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer, with this brilliant new book, Critical Dilemma. It just came out this week. You need to pick up a copy. As I said, very well written, very well researched. This will be your go-to source for this topic. Before we get back to them, however, I got to mention a number of events coming up. We have the SES, Southern Evangelical Seminary Steadfast Conference, 
on the 13th and 14th of October. That's next week right here near Charlotte, North Carolina, Rock Hill, South Carolina, actually. I'll also be speaking at the morning services at First Baptist Church in Rock Hill that Sunday. Uh, also want to mention this coming Tuesday, I'll be down in Noonan, Georgia at First Baptist Church talking about the issue of transgenderism. We'll try and be correct, not politically correct. That's on October 10th. And then on October 19th, the Ohio State University for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It'll be in the Ohio State Student Union, 7.30 p.m. Then the following week, we have Northwest Missouri State University. We have Missouri Western State University. And then on the 26th, Auburn University, War Eagle right there. And on the 2nd, we have University of Cincinnati. That's November. That's coming up. Also keep an eye on the Monday night Zoom meetings. Uh, or I'm sorry, the Monday night uh, the Monday night TV shows. We're going through the archaeology, the top archaeological uh, discoveries in the entire Bible. Go to crossexamine.org, click on Frank Turk calendar, you'll see it there. Uh, Neil, let me start with you on the question of how do critical theorists respond generally when people have to acknowledge we've made progress, at least it seems from a law perspective, we don't have laws that are discriminatory against minorities. We may have some discriminatory against majorities, but how would they respond to that? What would they say or what do they it's say? a great question. So critical race theory is the critical theory that's devoted to the study of race, especially with respect to law. And what critical race theorists, generally speaking, would say today is that they would acknowledge grudgingly that overt de facto, or sorry, de jure racism, like the co encoded in law, that has mm -hmm. largely gone away. However, they would strongly assert that de, de facto racism, covert racism, has replaced it. And people like Eduardo Benia Silva, who was the ASA president a few years ago, uh, wrote a book called Racism Without Racists. He even goes so far as to say that modern day de facto racism is no less powerful than Jim Crow. So a phrase they use a lot is racism never goes away, it just adapts. It mutates into new forms that are really just as effective and even more insidious than it was under Jim Crow and even under slavery. So that strikes us as bizarre, but it really is a central tenet of critical race theory. Yeah, deception never goes away either. It just morphs itself into something else. And uh, that seems like a very deceptive comment to me. Racism doesn't go away. It just goes underground somewhere. Where has it gone, Pat? Where has where racism gone? If it's not in our laws anymore, where is it? Well, from a critical social theory standpoint, concerns around competition, egalitarianism, meritocracy, mm -hmm. these kinds of perspectives that are often considered a kind of a cultural good, a collective good in terms of a, an idea that's taken root. Uh, a critical social theory would say that actually a push for meritocracy, meritocracy, competition, egalitarianism, this idea, this discourse that we're all equal now because now we're past the civil rights movement, that, that these ideas fail to get that the playing field is still not level. And to push this kind of discourse is, in effect, reifying the disadvantages that are still in place. And so this is why part of anti-racism's campaign 
and some of the comments and perspectives that Kendi has pushed forth is that the way you deal with the racism is that you employ some racism of your own. And the it we want to be nuanced and we want to be thoughtful. It certainly can be the case that perspectives like, for instance, colorblindness, that is considered to be something that a lot of people would embrace that, hey, we're not seeing color. That's a that's a good thing. But a critical social theorist would lump that in with meritocracy and egalitarianism and competition. It's something that is just masking racism. And when we think about colorblindness, part of the point that a critical social theorist would make, which is somewhat valid, is that colorblindness ideology can erase color. And so if you erase my color, you're almost erasing my ethnicity, you're, you're erasing my subcultural background, and therefore I'm erased, and I don't want those things to be erased. And that point is well taken, and Christians and, and people that are concerned about woke perspective need to be thoughtful about it. But the problem is, it's just not true that in every situation where someone is making a point to not see color, that they're actually being racist. And in fact, when that ideology was more pronounced and people were coming to that in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, for many of those people that held that position, they were in fact not being racist <laughs> by holding that position. And so those that are pushing for fairness and equality and egalitarianism and competition is tr are trying to open up spaces for all people. And so that is still a reality and still true, even if we need to... Uh, investigate how those perspectives could disadvantage some and and could not deal with an unlevel playing field quite like it should. So our book is offering a nuanced perspective around these things and not drinking the Kool-Aid wholesale from critical social theory on these topics. Neil, if uh, critical theorists had their way, suppose they were benevolent dictators Maybe not benevolent, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but if they could just dictate the solution to what they see in our society, what do you think they would do? So one of the really uh, important word to understand is equity and uh, mm -hmm. versus equality. And critical social theorists yes. will draw that distinction. Equality, they will say, is treating everyone equally, procedural justice. Everyone gets the same treatment. And they will point out, though, that, that actually the equality discourse is flawed, according to them, because it fails to recognize that we're not all starting from the same place. What they would argue for is equity. What equity would insist is that equity allows you to treat different groups differently, to not treat everyone the same, because they're not equally situated socially. Now, we can actually acknowledge that that's a reasonable idea in some cases. For example, if you say... Um, we're not going to have a wheelchair ramp. Everybody can use the stairs. And you say, well, mm. well, wait a minute. Everybody, yeah, people in wheelchairs, people on crutches, they can all use the stairs. We're all equal. So, well, wait a minute. In this case, I think people that are in a wheelchair deserve different treatment because they literally can't use the stairs. That's an example of reasonable equity. You say we are treating groups differently because they just, they're actually handicapped. But our pushback is, but is that really the case that black people are analogous, say, to people in wheelchairs, that's almost very, in fact, it's very insulting. So we'd want to ask, is it really true that we need to treat people of color differently for them to even gain access to, say, education? That's where we want to, we'd say, no, we don't think that is actually a good analogy. Uh, but they, they, so if what they would put in place is then a system of laws 
that basically judged equity in terms of outcome. What they would ask is, are these groups graduating and earning money and being successful at exactly or roughly equal rates? And if they are not, we have to put our thumb on the scale until we achieve equal outcomes. That's how we know that real justice has been achieved. If we see out equal outcome, and if it hasn't yet, then we have to put make other laws that insist on attaining equal outcome. But there aren't there thousands of reasons why people arrive at different points in life that have nothing to do with their race? Oh, Doesn't that assume, as Kendi put it, that if there are disparities between, say, whites, blacks, and Asians, that 100% of those disparities are due to racism? Yeah, he says that in his book. Is that? And yeah, he's, he's yes. just wrong, and that's absolutely right. There are many factors besides race that influence group outcomes. Uh, we actually excite Thomas Sowell quite a bit in one of the chapters yes. because he points out it's it's things like geography, you know, uh, mountainous regions are economically poor compared to coastal regions. It's not because coastal regions have an unfair advantage or discriminating or oppressing the mountainous regions. It's because of their being landlocked, not experiencing trade, mm -hmm. and maybe you're deficient in iodine from the seawater. So it's or the Irish potato famine. It blighted crops in Ireland and not in America because the fungus grew in Ireland. So these kind of historical contingencies just affect outcomes. We can't reduce everything just to one factor like racism. Pat, um, what would you add to what uh, Neil just said on that? Because it seems that if the the solution to this is make everybody come out the same, that's just impossible. And scripturally, that doesn't even appear to be the case. We're not all going to be the, even the same in the afterlife, correct? Well, right. That, that position that everybody should be the same sounds on the surface as something benevolent and good, but it's actually not. Mm -hmm. That That is not actually what we want ultimately because that would pretend that there aren't meaningful differences that have led people to be successful in, in comparison to others that haven't been successful. And we don't want to erase those meaningful differences. I teach at the college level and I give exams. And sometimes I say to my students, you know, some of you made a hundred, some of you made a 50. So why don't we just do this? I just give everybody a 70 and, and we're all, and we'll all have the same. Now, yeah. raise your hand if you would like me to do that. And this is before I've given the grades back. And, uh -huh. you know, it's interesting. I'll have a couple of hands go up because they know they bombed it. Okay. And, and then I'll have some hands that don't go up. And so what we're getting to is that the anti-racist literature and to an extent, critical social theory in general, want to take a one-to-one -one correspondence between disparities between blacks and whites to equal racism and trying to make mm -hmm. everything monocausal. And this is a flawed, flawed perspective. And our book unpacks some of this as Neil has already articulated. And it's not just race, yes. it's things like gender disparities. Why are there so many male engineers and female, say, nurses? And is it sexism? Well, well no, actually, there are studies that you can point to that say it actually seems like women gravitate towards person-based professions and men towards object-based professions. And you can't engineer that as society. It's just due to our innate natures as male and female. So it's not it's not just about racial disparities. It's gender disparities. It's all, it's class disparities. It's educational disparities. They all want to put all of that under the oppression, under the rubric of oppression and injustice. And it, and it can't, it can't fit there. 
And some of it is based on family structure, yeah. too. That, that's you know, right. What kind of family were you brought up in and what kind of choices did you make? What kind of talents did you have? There's so many reasons why people arrive at different locations in life. It can't all be about racism. A lot more with Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer, their brand new book, Critical Dilemma. We're going to talk about how this is affecting the church in our final segment. And what can you do if you come across these ideas in your church? So don't go anywhere back in just two minutes. There's not enough women bricklayers. It must be sexism, ladies and gentlemen. No, not necessarily. (laughs) We're talking to Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer about their brand new fabulous book called Critical Dilemma. One other thing. I want to mention, as you know, in public schools, we don't teach kids how to think. We teach them what to feel. That's why you want to be a part of our brand new logic course called Train Your Brain. If you want to be, if you're a junior high or sixth to eighth grade wants to be a part of that, they got to sign up before October 9th. Anyone can take the self-paced course at any time, even though it's written for sixth to eighth graders. If you you have not had a course in logic because you went to public school, you need to take the course. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You will see it there. All right, uh, Neil, let me start with you. You you go through in chapter 13, and chapter 13 is worth the price of the book, ladies and gentlemen. The whole book is great, but... Um, I, the, the title of the chapter is Ideas That Will Devastate Your Church. So let's go rapid fire as we can. I'll go back and forth between you two guys. Uh, you can't cover, I know you can't make every counter argument to what these claims are. They'll have to get the book to go further, but just give us one idea on each of them. Neil, with you, first one. People of color in the U.S. are oppressed. Right. This goes back to the definition of oppression. I think the knee-jerk reaction is, of course they are, of course they are. But then you say, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that my, you know, my black friend or my Hispanic friend walks around every day being cruelly and unjustly treated by a tyrant? And usually the answer is, well, no, I don't mean that. Well, what do you mean? I mean that there are systems and structures which marginalize as a group blacks and Hispanics and other people of color. Well, that, my friend, is critical theory's definition of oppression. And if you're going to be consistent, you have to apply that definition not just to race, but to gender, to sexuality, to physical ability, and etc. And that's exactly why people like Black Lives Matter have lumped together racial oppression and gender oppression and queer oppression. So right back, we'd push back immediately and say, define your terms. What do you mean by oppression? And don't use the definition that is being foisted on you by critical social theory. As a group, though, Asians perform better than whites and blacks. So what would they say about that, Pat? What's what's their what's their explanation for that? Part of the response would be that Asians are performing white, that they're being read. What? They're being read as white in culture and that they're performing whiteness and they've. uh, But they're doing better than whites. Right. So they've they've improved on the the regime of truth on the game. They've improved on it. And. And again, they part of the response would be your point that Asians do, you know, offer a, a, a countervailing perspective on critical social theories uh, perspectives in these areas. So, yeah. how about let me let me give you one here, Pat. Um, dealing with this. It, there's actually a phrase that says whiteness is wickedness. What does that mean? Well, the term whiteness now in critical social theory has been embedded with all different kinds of ideas that are negative. For instance, genocide or oppression or this notion of 
white supremacy being tied to whiteness. This idea that whites control power and are dominant and are exercising their power in ways that are marginalizing and disenfranchising others. And so whiteness is a term that is onboarding all of that. Now, critical social theory would say that it's possible to be non-white, to be black or Hispanic, and be adopting whiteness as you know, genocide, colonization perspectives, colonizing perspectives. And, and, and so whiteness now has been uh, conveniently tethered to, in this country, slavery and Jim Crow. And since whites were leading in slavery and in Jim Crow in terms of oppression, now this term whiteness can be thought of as an oppressive state. And again, it's a little bit of a sleight of hand because they'll say that other groups can adopt whiteness too that aren't necessarily white. The problem, though, is that in typical conversation and even in the literature at points, there's a conflation between white skin and whiteness. And that if you've got white skin, well, now you're conflated into this oppressor status because you are embodying whiteness. And we say that that is horrendous because if you study hermitology, the doctrine of sin, if you study anthropology, if you study phenomenology, if you study ontology, the nature of being human, phenomenology, lived experience and lived existence, well, then you will see that all kinds of ethnic groups and all different kinds of skin tone have done all kinds of horrible things that mm-hmm. would, uh, you know, everybody has been uh, a slaver. Everybody's been yes. cruel and unjust. Genocide is not captive to just white people. In fact, history bears us out. Sin is pervasive with all skin tones. And so just isolating the term whiteness and onboarding, onboarding all these negative things is radically disingenuous. How about this one, Neil? Uh, justice is part of the gospel. If you hear that in your church, what should you say? I would say, again, define justice, define the gospel. The big problem with this slogan is that it, usually people are thinking in terms of Doing social justice is part of the gospel. And the big problem here is that doing social justice is something that we do. It's an activity. It's an imperative. You might think, well, we ought to do social justice. Okay, let's say you do. But what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news, the indicative statement of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, period. We receive the gospel. We don't perform the gospel. So you're, conf- you're, you're confusing what we ought to do in response to the gospel with the gospel itself. That's ex- extremely pernicious error. So I would want to say you can, as a Christian, as an evangelical, you can say the gospel should motivate us to pursue biblical justice, should motivate us to do a lot of other things like be sexually pure. It should motivate us to love our neighbor. It should motivate us to be generous. But those things are not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that even though we do not do those things, we do not obey God's law, that Jesus bore our sin on the cross and rose from the dead so that we who are unjust could be made righteous. So we want to keep those two ideas of what Jesus did for us and that we do in response to him very distinct. And Frank, what are you going to say, Pat? Yeah, Frank, one of the yeah. things that we have seen by people adopting that mentality, enfolding into the gospel pursuits of justice, now we see certain national Christians and national ministries that have morphed from something that was concerned about sound doctrine and spiritual perspectives and 
salvation spiritually primarily, now they're all about temporal justice, working for temporal justice. Mm, and so that mm, ethnic mm. identity wrapped up into the social binary has now is now the leading, dominating aspects of these ministries that we have in view. And so now the gospel has been displaced for efforts to emancipate those who are marginalized and di- disenfranchised, given temporal justice. And now we've, we, we've, we're pushing a counterfeit gospel at this point with some of those no, groups. Yeah, so that's the concern. Not only that, but it, it really seems like the anti-Martin Luther King philosophy. You know, he, of course, famously said, I, I have a dream that my four children will be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Doesn't it seem like this is the opposite of that, that people are now going to be judged by the color of their skin and you're going to treat people differently based on what ethnic group they're in rather than just on the content of their character, how they behave? Neil, am I missing this? No, actually, is, is that what's interestingly, going on? the critical race theory in its origination in the 1980s and 90s, it was explicitly contrasting itself to the vision of the civil rights movement. They were insistent that the civil rights movement had not succeeded ultimately because they were operating on this egalitarian uh, sort of classical liberal framework that wanted equality when they really should have been working uh, from a critical standpoint, which did recognize more about power dynamics and the inherent injustice of the law. A great example we went through in the book is how uh, King interpreted the Constitution as being for the equality of blacks and whites. Whereas critical race theory would view these documents as actually enshrining white supremacy at its core. So they take a totally Mm. different approach, and even to the law. Again, we go through this in our book, but you can see how they approach our founding documents. King as seeing them as uh, basically writing checks for black emancipation, whereas critical race theorists would see them ultimately as enshrining white dominance. Diametrically opposed views. Okay, uh, Pat. Is critical race theory in any way compatible with Orthodox Christianity? If you approach critical race theory from a robust standpoint, onboarding it as a whole or in the main, then it is opposed to biblical Christianity. There are aspects of critical race theory that are in fact true, and so they're not opposed to to biblical Christianity. Mm -hmm. For instance, critical race theory is concerned about racism. Well, so is, is real Christianity is concerned about racism. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to onboard all of critical race theory, then we have to take critical race theory's approach to the interlocking system of oppressions that are part and parcel to society. And then when we do that, now we have to adopt uh, queer theory's agenda for the gay rights movement. We have to adopt uh, issues around how to think about men and women in the church and, and around complementarianism and egalitarianism, we've got to think about the differently abled in a way that now runs counter to aspects of, of biblical Christianity, recognizing the, the fall and what took place with the fall and how that's impacted our bodies. We have to flip the script on how we think about uh, just human bodies and time and space that will start to run concurrent and at odds with the Christian faith. Do you gentlemen have uh, a few more minutes because we're running out of time here and I'd like to maybe extend this to the midweek podcast because I have several more questions. Is that okay? Do you guys have more time? I'm fine. Yes, sir. All right. All right. Yeah, friends, uh, there's so much great in this book. I have a few more 
uh, insights I want to get from Neil and Pat. So we'll cover that on the midweek podcast coming up on Tuesday. Those of you listening on the American Family Radio Network, it will not be broadcast on radio. You have to go to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. And this coming Tuesday, the second half of this interview will be released. In the meantime, wherever you get books, uh, well, actually, there's a website. What's the website, Neil, for the book? CriticalDilemma.com. Go to criticaldilemma.com. You can read the endorsements there, maybe uh, a few pages of the book before you buy it. Uh, check it out, but you do you do want to get this book. It is the new standard on this topic, and you need to know about it because it's coming toward your church, so be ready. And Lord willing, folks, we will see you here on Tuesday. God bless.